Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Welcome to the Camera Podcast, Pubs, Pints and People. Hello and welcome to the Camera Podcast, Pubs, Pints and People, where we talk about everything to do with beer, pubs, cider, perry and more. Your host propping up the virtual bar, as always, I'm myself, Matt, and I'm joined by Ant and Katie. Hello all. Hello. Hello indeed. In this week's episode, we're talking about a subject that's very close to every beer and pub lover's heart, and indeed at the centre of Camera's mission, and that is preserving our heritage. By that, we mean keeping alive the traditional recipes and the techniques for making beer, where currently celebrating mild may and it's also about protecting the wonderful pub buildings that we're lucky to have in this country and where we can actually enjoy those great drinks i tell you what that's how i like my heritage something delicious to drink and somewhere beautiful to sit and drink it sounds great and it's something that i think is actually taken a bit for granted over here i'm originally from the states and i have to say it's really surreal to walk into my local village pub and find the original fireplace from the 1600s when that pretty much predates anything that i would find in the country where i grew up it's something that really amazes us Americans when we come to visit and it's just something that's really special about British pub culture. I think it's really really important and it's such a huge part of the preservation campaigning that camera does. My wife and I have been to some wonderful places around the world but I remember for our our wedding anniversaries we went to Stratford-upon-Avon and I mean those that live in that area or those that have been to it will know exactly what I'm talking about when you walk down that high street and see some of the most wonderful buildings with pubs Mm -hmm. sort of propped up by all the wooden pillars and proper little taverns that you can go and have a drink in i just think they're absolutely charming and make me feel quite special and privileged to be in those kinds of places when you think how the history and the amount of people that have drunk in them and what they were before they became pubs i love all of that kind of stuff i ended up actually doing my wedding reception in the fighting cox pub in st albans which calls itself the oldest pub in britain and they have an underground tunnel up to the monastery where the monks used to come down to drink the beer and they've got an old cockfighting pit in it and it's just more authentic and more beautiful than any venue I could have gotten in around the world. I think they're absolutely beautiful and really mm. fantastic places. There's a time and a place for lovely refurbished pub where it's usually isn't it the old beam 
teams have been playing down as Farrow and Ball paint on the walls. You know, there's a time and a place for that and some lovely new ones. But for me, I love a traditional wood panelled pub. You can feel where you're sitting there. You feel like it hasn't changed in centuries. You could have gone there a hundred years ago and sit having a pint, probably in the same kind of dimpled glass as well. I was always surprised when I came to London that actually there's so many authentic old pubs when you go around, especially the Samuel Taylor pubs that you go to. They do a great job of keeping the original features and you sit down with the glass panelling and the bar divided into the snug and the different bars hitting your head on the low beams and that's what it's all about. Camera actually does pub design awards every year and we just announced them for this year and that ranges from everything to tasteful new build awards. This year that was a hall in Woodhouse in Swindon. Got this gorgeous canal side look to it. We also have things like the conversion awards so old butcher shops or farmhouses that are converted to pubs. We look at conservation so pubs that have been built hundreds of years ago that have been painstakingly restored. So there's so many really amazing examples of fantastic pub design and pub heritage out there that are really worth seeking out for the avid pub goer. I am feeling so nostalgic right now about all of these wonderful pubs I've been to and I can't go to any at the moment. <laughs> but do you know what? This is what this episode is all about, folks. It's about us looking at historic England and all of these wonderful heritage listings that we've got. Because what we want to do here is save pubs from closure and, God forbid, demolition. And today we're interviewing two people who are right at the forefront of the fight to protect the industry's past. We'll be hearing from Steve Dunkey from Beer Nouveau. That's a brewery in Manchester who are reviving authentic old beer recipes. And then Katie's going to sit down with Jeff Brandwood from Camera's Pub Heritage Committee, who's written loads of pub heritage guides. He's a legend of this area, encyclopedic knowledge, the best heritage pubs around the country. And he'll be explaining more about the work that Camera does to protect, preserve and promote pubs of historic value. So without further ado, let's move on to our chat with Steve from Beer Novu. And this one was organised by our volunteer up north, Adam Taylor from Manchester. This was recorded before lockdown, actually on the brewery floor. So you've got some authentic background noise to match the story of authentic beers that Steve is making. Learn and discover. Hi, I'm with Steve from Beer Nouveau. If you'd like to just tell us a bit about yourself and the brewery. I started brewing when I was 14, back in the, God, that would be the 80s. Heritage brewing is basically, well, as I see it, and quite a few of us do, brewing beers that we used to brew. Sometimes by the style, sometimes by the recipe, exact recipes. It's a bit of an unusual one, really, because most modern brewers, they're getting new ingredients and they're looking how they can use them and they're putting lots of hops in, they're using different malts, they're creating new styles, they're using barrels in different ways if they do it with barrel-aging programs, they're doing all manner of weird and often wonderful stuff. Whereas it seems a bit strange that as a brewer, you don't want to do any of that. I mean, I do that as well, but the heritage stuff is much more interesting, and I think brewers need to do it because there's so much there that you can learn by reading a book than you can learn by several years of experimentation. We find this, especially when you put the beer into the wood, that there's a huge difference in the type of the wood, there's a huge difference in how wood lasts, and there's a huge difference in the size of the barrels, and how long the beer is in each of these. That gives you a more complete and more finished beer. An example of this that we've been finding is if you take a recipe from the 1930s, 1940s, the beer at the time was not good. There was rationing, there wasn't many people around because we'd send them all off to die. But you brew the beer and you put it into a metal cask or a plastic cask to condition in the cask. It doesn't really do anything. There's no real conditioning going on. All that's really happening is any yeast stuff that's still 
still there, gets finished off. Sugars that the beer is primed with, they just carbonate it lightly. So our current conditioning in cask conditioning is not right, which is a strange way to describe it. But if you put it into a wood cask, more of a secondary fermentation is going on in the cask. Then when you pour the beer out of it afterwards, it's much more complete, much more finished. What seems to have happened is as breweries moved away from the wooden casks into the metal, they didn't change the recipes for it. So the same beer was going into wood as was going into metal. And it's when you put it into that context, you start to realize that if you were to just take an old recipe and rebrew it on modern equipment, modern ingredients, modern dispense, it's not the same beer because it's not had the right ingredients, the right brewing method, the right dispense method. You look at an old recipe and it says, right, this final gravity on this is 10.25. That would be a very sweet beer. The reason it's 10.25 is when it goes into the wood to condition, it's still fermenting in the wood. So it's just that last bit of fermentation happens inside the wood cask. And during that time, it's not just converting the sugars to alcohol to give it the fizz. The fizz will eventually fade out through the wood because wood's porous. But what that's doing is it's stopping the air coming in through the wood the other way. So it keeps the pressure up in there. That pressure, that fizz, keeps it conditioned like that. These days, when we put a beer into a metal cask or into a plastic cask, we're trying to fake that. It's taken a long time for us to drop out the gravity a lot lower and to count for that. It's not the same beer. So one of the things we do is we'll brew a beer recipes, or quite a modern one, so that a larger brewer is still brewing. We'll brew the modern recipe as a clone. We'll brew one from the 80s. And if we can, we'll brew one from the 60s and the 30s to see how it has changed over the time. But we'll put it into the same, into the right dispense that it should have been put into, as well as using the right ingredients from it. Because the malts changed, the hops have changed, the yeasts have changed. And what we're generally finding when you put it down in front of somebody, the final product, is they almost always prefer the oldest recipe. We then look at why that actually is, and it's that finished aspect that a beer gets from being in a wooden cask. As further back we go, the more we actually learn about it. And is this something that big breweries are looking into? I don't think so. What seems to be happening is there's a lot of nostalgia, lots of, sort of like rose-tinted spectacles about the history of beer. You can even still talk to any old bloke who used to sit in the pub, drink a pint of mild for a pound of pint. Actually, I used to drink a pint of mild for a pound of pint. You can talk to them about it and that beer was always better in those days. We don't know. And this is one of the reasons we do this, but there's a lot of love for quite a few old beers and quite a few old brands. Sometimes it, it's deserved, sometimes it's not. You've got to give massive credit to the guys who took on Watney's brand recently. They're not brewing Red Barrel. They're not brewing any of the crap. They're brewing decent new beers using the Watney's branding because it's a household name. Huge gamble doing that. Everyone's heard of Watney's, but not in a good way. You've also got breweries like Truman's. They are brewing the old recipes. They are doing it right. They're not relying just on it, though. They're doing it alongside more modern, more sort of hop-forward and hop-led beers. Goose Island, annoyingly, are doing this well, uh, for big beer. They've been working with Ron Pattinson, really knows his stuff. Great beer historian. Without him, I don't think anyone else would be doing any of those sort of stuff. They've done two beers with him now. They did a Stock Ale, which was very, very good. And they've just released another one, which is uh, Obadiah Poundage, I think it is, which is a, a London porter, which I've not tried yet, but I do have a bottle behind the bar that I'll be trying this weekend. So, again, looking forward to that. But it seems to be a massive push of nostalgia into the States. And you get a lot of Americans coming in here. 
I think one of the reasons we get a lot of them coming into here is because we have handfuls. They can get West Coast IPAs anywhere in the States. They can get New England IPAs. They, they come in here and they see the wood casks, they see the handfuls, and they stay. We've had people come in here. They're only in Manchester for a Saturday. They start in our place and they never leave. The pub call just goes completely out the window because we're providing what they want. They, they, they like this tradition that we have. There's a, this huge desire in the States to hook into that. This is why some of the more traditional breweries seem to sell a lot of beer over there. Playing on start or hooking into that, you've also then got breweries like BrewDog. Now, they've been working with Martin Cornell to create a load of recipes based on all sorts and sell it out on the all sorts brand. What kind of challenges do brewers face when brewing heritage beers? Are the recipes fairly easy to come by? For your average brewer, yes. Um, originally, no. It has been a lot of work for people like Ron Pattinson to go around to record libraries, council offices, some of the big old brews that are still going, and go through all of their record books, photographing all of the pages. He's done a huge amount of work. I would really say if any brewery wants to brew heritage beer, buy his book. It's not just the recipe, there's a lot more detail in there. He really goes into a lot of the old brewing techniques, what a lot of the stuff actually means. A lot of the terminology that is used in brewing for historical beers is used differently these days. And it's kind of a shame because there's a lot of modern brewers that will latch on to continental terminology. A great example of this, especially seen as we're up in, in Manchester, Krausen. It's the fluffy yeast head. But it's not. We've already got a word for that, balm. Once you get into the habit of it, though, you get an idea of what the style is, and then you can start creating your own heritage recipes. <laughs> but it's not actually that dissimilar from modern ones. They are styles. They are different from modern styles, but they are still styles themselves. You can brew it again and again and again. You can tweak the recipes to suit your tastes, the customers' tastes. So are there aspects of the heritage brewing that you use in your modern beers? Oh, I do. There's something we found. It can A, save you money in the long run, but it seems like it's costing you a lot of money to start with. In modern brewing, you'll add a load of aroma hops, last 10 minutes or so to boil, covers the top of your copper by a couple of inches or so. You're still losing some of that aroma. However, with heritage brewing, there's a huge amount of them. You'd get about a foot deep on top of your copper. As the copper boiled, you'd get some recirculation going on between the wort and the, the layer of hops, just the bottom part of that. So they're all being used and they're all getting wet and they're all sort of like boiling and you're getting all the oils out of them. But there's always a layer of hops on there, so none of these essential oils were boiling away. They weren't being boiled off. It's pure accident we found this out. And what that then does is all of those oils are going back into the wort and staying there. So we did this with green hops last year. What we found was opening the bottle of beer six, nine months later, it still smelled as fresh as it was a couple of weeks old. The oils hadn't dissipated. You're able to produce a beer that if you open a bottle of it six, nine months later, it still smells incredibly fresh because of the way that it's been boiled with all those excess hops. Now, if you were to try and do that with you know, something like Cascade or Citro or any of the stewing, the modern ones, it'd be extortionately expensive to do. It'd also be pointless because when you brew it, they're very high acid content and it'd be incredibly bitter. But it does mean you can use the cheaper hops like they were designed to be used. So are we still 
learning more about heritage beer all the time? Well, first evidence of beer is 13,000 BC, so I think we've got a way to go, <laughs> to be quite blunt. Prior to 1700s, not much was really written down. So one of the things we're doing is we're working with archaeologists on digs, working about what they found on there, what evidence they had. We can work out that a person would have spent all day brewing enough, you know, 6% beer for one small little coastal village, which really isn't kind of practical because that's one person of their village doing nothing but brewing beer. But you then look at the amount of these shards that they had and therefore we worked out how many vessels they had. So you kind of know that they'd brew a six odd percent beer and then they'd liquor it back. They would only then be brewing once every couple of days during the week for their feast and the celebrations they'd brew much the, the stronger six percent beer and people would quaff that. We've worked with an Egyptian archaeology student as well and we created an Egyptian ale. There's a lot of this sort of stuff still to do. Beer goes back to you know before people settled down to make villages. So even the Vikings were drinking session beers then? Absolutely. Anything's a session beer really. It's just how long a session do you want? <laughs> Learn and discover. I'll tell you what, I love the idea of creating your own heritage styles. That's amazing. It's inspired by the past to make something new. Yeah, it's really interesting to hear Steve talk about the importance of dispense as well and how much of an impact putting an authentic beer recipe in a metal keg can actually change the taste and flavour profile of that beer. It's really clear that Steve and the team are putting so much research and going through the record books to find these wonderful Mm. recipes. And what's great is that it's all online and it's ready to be shared and ready to be experimented with and see if we can do it ourselves. And we heard Steve talking about mild beer. My ears pricked up then. I'll tell you what, that's a style I've got a real soft spot for. Um, I used to enjoy a pint of mild when I used to live in the Lake District where I'm from in the wonderful historic pubs there. I remember just sitting down with that lovely nutty flavoured pint. God, it was only about pound fifty sometimes <laughs> when I was there. That's uh, revealing my age. That was a real thing where you thought, right, I'm sitting in the same seat where my father's father's father would have sat and enjoyed this same type of drink. Mm. Were you also wearing a flat cap and did you also have a golden retriever next to you, Mark? Because I'm imagining this now. I can see you there in the armchair. <laughs> and wellies. Boots, yeah. That's the kind of Cumbrian stereotype we've been fighting against. <laughs> Mild actually was at risk of extinction just a few years ago. So Camera does a lot to try and preserve and promote Mild. We usually, when we're not in lockdown, we do Mild trails. We encourage pubs to stock Mild and for our members to go out and try loads of different Mild beers. Same with the pubs. If you don't use that style, you're, we're going to lose them. Definitely. And for those of you that don't know, the month of May is also Mild Month. So if you're wanting to celebrate and you've not done it already get on that brew to you app find a company delivering some of that mild and get enjoying what's left of this month i'd tell you what the app's done really well it's had over 10k of sales in just a week since launching which is amazing it just shows what demand out there there is to source kind of quality locally brewed real ales and not all of that 10k was me so that's good good news for everyone that would be really dedicated to the cause a couple of weeks ago you may remember that we set a competition to win a home brewer board game and we can announce that through some very tough competition we do have a lucky winner and that winner is Tom Clark up in Warrington Tom congratulations the homebrew board game is on its way to you absolutely well done today and thank you to everyone who's rated and reviewed the podcast so far please keep doing it please keep tweeting as well at camera underscore official everything that you can do to get involved with the podcast warms our heart and keeps us going through this lockdown it does as you know what it's nice to see so many of you listening spread the word subscribe as well you'll never miss an episode now we're looking at Sunowak's recipe for this week, our master co-
cook on the show, she's put together a lovely roast chicken pairing with Fuller's Vintage Ale, which is one mm. of my favorite beers out there. So we've got the full recipe in the show notes as always. Take a look. If you have a Fuller's Vintage Ale knocking around the house, why not try it with a roast chicken this week? I, tell you, I, I just love the beautiful stories she writes that give the background of each recipe. And I like in this one that Fuller's is too fine really to cook with. So it's just add a slur. That's the best way you can imagine. <laughs> it's kind of one glass for me, one tiny drop for the chicken. <laughs> That's it. I definitely save the beers I'm not as keen on and use those for my cooking beer. My favourite is I like to make a Guinness cake. If I get something that's a little bit out of date or not really the best dark beer I've ever tried, I put that in the pantry and then wait to pull out my little Guinness cake recipe, which comes out every blue moon. I would love to try some of that the next (laughs) time we all meet together, Katie Wiles. Or if not, you know, send me the recipe, I'll give it a go. Now, before we head off to the kitchen, let's sit down with Jeff Bramwood. He's the author of Cameras Pub Heritage Series, and this one was done by you again, Katie. Desert Island Beer. So now for our Desert Island beer section, I am sitting down with Jeff Brandwood, who is a pub heritage guru for camera. He's written dozens of books about pub heritage for a series, different guides and information packs for people so that they can find a heritage pub. Jeff, if you were stranded on a desert island, what would you drink? Oh my goodness, what a question. We have now 1,800 brewers in this country, each of which will be brewing in every year half a dozen beers. And you asked me to choose something out of that? It all depends. I think one of the greatest beers uh, in this country, the traditional brewer, is Harvey's of Lewis. They produce some fantastic beers, like their classic Best Bitter, which is a really well-rounded traditional bitter. It's quite wonderful. If I was in the north, I might well go for Timothy Taylor's Landlord, which is, a again, a sort of really succulent, slightly sweetish bitter. It's so fulfilling. It depends on your mood at the time, to some extent. One of my favourites, actually, is a drink which is very hard to get these days. It's mild. In the past, you know, 100 years ago, you went into a pub and you had mild or bitter. Simple as that, mild or bitter. And the milds are sort of tend to be a dark, quite weak beer, but with... You know, packed with a lot of flavour. And if you ever see any of those on offer, that's I would always enjoy one of those. Elgood's Mild, for example, from, from Cambridge is an absolute cracker. really is. And turning our attention to pubs, which we're all missing during lockdown, you are our pub heritage guru. Can you explain what pub heritage actually is? I'll have a try. The thing is that the pub is you know, it's regarded as one of the great British institutions. It's one of the places that visitors always want to go to to get that British experience. And the pub, as we know it today, has it changed enormously over the years. And so few of them actually have, uh, you know, what matters about the pub is what it's like inside. And so few of them actually are as they were even 50, 60 years ago. There's been so much change. Our Heritage Pub Project is to try to encourage people to get into pubs which haven't changed too much. We've spent in camera, what, 25, 30 years trying to identify pubs which are relatively unaltered. And we think we've got a pretty good idea of where they are and where we can um, encourage people to go. What do you think is actually important about a heritage pub? Why do we need to preserve them? All of us, I think, think about the pub as being this great traditional historic institution and actually to step back in time to connect with the past. And it's a great thing, you know. 
people love love heritage. They love old buildings and traditional pubs and their atmosphere. It's something quite special. How does a pub become a heritage pub in Camera's eyes? What do they have to do? How could you identify one if you walked into a heritage um, pub? Well, Katie, it's more a question of what they don't do. <laughs> that is <laughs> to remain as they were, let's say, 50 or 60 years ago. The big thing about the pub, the biggest change that's come over it, is the fact that today you go into a modern pub and there'll be one single space. In the past, it was quite different quite, quite different, that people like drinking in smaller spaces, and they were very hierarchically organised. You had the public bar, which was the cheapest room in, in the pub, is more the haunt of the working man, and you paid a little bit more if you wanted a bit more luxury in the saloon bar or the lounge. But all that sort of thing is, you know, in a much more egalitarian society. That has been swept away, and the consequence of which is that we've lost so much lovely woodwork, lovely seating, some beautiful fixtures and fittings, which have been sacrificed to this opening out. I mean, it's just changing times. For truly historic pubs, we've really got so little left, and we've tried to encourage people to get into those and, you know, savour this historic ambience. Is there one part of the country that has preserved pubs better than others? What I'm going to say is probably going to seem a bit odd and rather extraordinary. Probably as much as anywhere else is London. A lot of pubs in London which are still preserving much of what they had in Victorian times, which means some fantastic atmospheres and fantastic fittings, stained glass, uh, screens, glass, all that sort of stuff. And you really feel a sense of stepping back into the Victorian world. Do you have a favourite? Oh, now there's a... Uh, it's a bit like you asked me about the beer. <laughs> <laughs> Desert <laughs> Island pub. <laughs> I'm going to give you a rather strange example here because it's a pub called Princess Louise in Hoban, which is right by Hoban tube station, so very, very easy to get to. That was refitted about 1897. And today you can walk in there and you've still got the same sort of atmosphere, the same sort of compartmentalisation in small spaces that you had back then. It is actually remarkable because the screen work had been removed in the 1930s, but was put back by the Yorkshire brewer Samuel Smiths in 2007 to really recreate the Victorian atmosphere. And you just can't do any, any better than that. But if you really want the number one star performer, I suppose you've got to go to Liverpool. Liverpool, 100 years ago, it was the greatest trading city in the British Empire. Huge amounts of money. And they built some unbelievable pubs. The star performer there is the Philharmonic Dining Rooms, which was built in 1898 to 1900 and has just become the first and only Victorian pub in this country to become Grade 1 listed. Um, grade 1 is the very, very highest grade, you know, along with Westminster Abbey or the Houses of Parliament. And what's special about it is that it was laid out for and was designed to appeal to the merchant elite of Liverpool for a drink and a meal. And he's got the most unbelievable woodwork, tiling, mosaic floors. Oh, it's, it's, it's just a stunner. So that's the Philharmonic Dining Rooms in, in Liverpool. So if somebody's a real history buff and wants to check out all these heritage mm. pubs, you've written a few books. Can you tell us a bit about where somebody can go to find these heritage pubs? We have a website, www.heritagepubs.org.uk. Very easy to use. You type in the place, uh, Edinburgh, London, or whatever town it is, and, and up they'll come. But we have a series of printed guides as well, and these are available from the Canberra Bookshop. You won't be disappointed. Can you tell us a bit more about what Camera does to protect and preserve and promote these heritage pubs? Well, the first and most important thing we do probably is to actually make them known to people, to encourage them to visit, because, uh, you know, 
if we don't use them, we'll lose them. So publicity, uh, awareness of them is, is, is hugely important. We've also worked very closely with Historic England uh, over getting protection, and it is out of that that we, I suppose, in the last 20 years, had something like 50 pubs listed. Mm. So that gives them their statutory protection. They need to get permission for major changes or demolition or something like that. And there's no question that we have actually saved a number of pubs through that that would otherwise have been mm. lost. Was there a recent initiative between Camera mm. and Historic England to strengthen protection for these pubs? Yeah, very much so. And it's out of that that this grade one listing for the Philharmonic in Liverpool has come about. We put forward a number of pubs where there was absolutely no information at all on the listing descriptions about what was important about them. Historic England have uh, took that up, have revised those listed descriptions so that uh, if changes are proposed to any of these pubs, local authorities and those giving permission for change know exactly what's so important about those pubs. Camera has a new pub heritage title coming out. What we're working on there is the South East, which mm. means, in practical terms, Oxfordshire, Buckinghamshire, and everything southeast of there, but not including London itself. And, you know, there's some great pubs in there. So we've now got pub heritage guides for every part of the country. Yes, yes. I mean, some are now out of print. I mean, this has been going on for 20 years, so some have, mm. some have sold out. But, but this one, it includes some fantastic stuff. And I suppose the star performer there is a pub in Brighton. It's called the King and Queen. It's right by the World Pavilion. It was built in the 1930s in a kind of rather nostalgic uh, Tudor style with lots of half timbering and uh, marvellous woodwork. It's an absolute cracker. If anyone's looking to get their hands on any of those guides and find some real mm. heritage pubs near them, they just have to visit the shop.camera.org.uk. Desert Island Beer. Well, I thought that was absolutely fascinating. I mean, I've visited a handful of pubs in Liverpool already, being from Manchester, mm. um, but I certainly would love to get down to London and just be transported back in time. I wouldn't say I'm a history buff or anything like that, but I really do love a good story. I love the Philharmonic pub that he mentions up in Liverpool in particular. That's got a grade one listing. It's on par with a Westminster Abbey in Buckingham Palace in terms of its heritage value. To think that a pub can be within those great listings Landmarks oh, yeah. is quite an amazing feat. I really have to get up and visit that one. It's a magnificent building, Katie. It really is. I think it's quite right. I think this country is built on pubs. And I think when I heard Jeff's phrase, that could be our catchphrase for when we come out of lockdown, use them or lose them. Mm -hmm. I loved hearing that. The BBPA, which is the British Beer and Pubs Association, estimated that without extra financial support, we're going to lose about 40% of the pubs by September, which is a very dark yeah. warning out oh, there. Yeah. Pubs have been on very much a lifeline for the last few years. It's been an incredibly hard industry, really difficult to weather the storm. So something like this is going to be devastating. So if we don't actually all go out and support them, which is going to be hard because who knows what the measures are going to be. We're actually running a survey across our members and general pub goers at the moment to try and gauge that and see what we should be saying to the government to make it supportive to the industry and keep these pubs going after lockdown eases. It's a stark warning, Katie, indeed. Hopefully things will be able to return as close to, to normal, if you can even use that word anymore. And when they do, don't forget you can search specifically for a heritage pub near you by visiting pubheritage.com 
camera.org.uk. Or you could get a copy of Britain's Best Real Heritage Pubs by Jeff. I've got my personal coffee in front of me, the 2013 edition, very well thumbed uh, <laughs> and lots of trips around. And there's actually a nifty little checklist at the back where you can record your visits. So it's a bit like train watching. And you have to say that you've gone to every single heritage pub around the country. <laughs> I mean, yeah. if you ever needed an excuse, isn't that it? Before you all head off to window shop all these heritage pubs during your unlimited daily exercise, which we can now all have, I mean, I wouldn't call what I do exercise, <laughs> but I certainly leave the four walls of my house. But before we do that, we've got our weekly dive into the camera archives to find another story of preserving our heritage. And this one is a tale of how the entire written history of beer making in Scotland was put in danger. That's right. I've got the February 1991 edition of What's Brewing in front of me. The Scottish Brewing Archive, which they call the only unified source of historical information about the country's rich brewing tradition, faced eviction and possible closure. And it was originally held at the Harriet Watt University in Edinburgh, which does the course. And the archivist there was told that he had to move all these files and books and records from these two small cramped little rooms at the university and he was very staggered and upset when speaking to what's brewing about this threat wow. i tell you what it conjures up a wonderful image doesn't it you know mcmaster is his name you know the master of the archives and uh, he's in his two rooms crammed from floor to ceiling with the sacred texts of scottish brewing you can imagine him a small scottish man just emerging from behind piles of paper <laughs> Uh, just just to give a short and curt interview about how angry he is. I can see it now. I mean, it kind of makes me feel like me running around the camera, what's brewing archive, which is not digitised, guys. It is many, many folders of old newspaper clippings that are probably at the end of their life. And do you know what? The story does have a happy ending. And later reports confirmed that the archive was ultimately moved to the University of Glasgow. So it's still intact to this day. So well, that's a lovely positive note. Let's head on to last orders last orders so what have we been drinking this week well i'll tell you what as luck would have it i didn't know it was heritage episode that we were recording this week but i have been trying a heritage ale myself Ooh. i believe or at least the, the name suggests it i got an order from chilton brewery and it's called their 300s dark old ale so if it isn't heritage and it's called old ale maybe i've been taken <laughs> in by advertising but it sounds pretty heritage to me got authentic cobwebs on the bottle but that just might be from where i keep it in my shed i don't know <laughs> <laughs> this week i picked myself up a couple of bottles of Thixton's Old Peculiar and it has been a wonderful thing to drink and a very sad thing to see go into the recycling bin because I've now got empty bottles of it. That's a great description of beer heritage in this country, old and peculiar. There we are. <laughs> and that's just how I like it. The sun's been out and yes, well, I've naturally had a lot of lighter stuff. I'd been drinking Pride the week before last, um, but this has been nice. It's such a rich and smooth intense beer. Uh, so yeah, I've really enjoyed that one this week. I'm going to be a bit cheeky and do two shout outs this week. The first is to Tring Brewery. I was so excited because after we recorded last week's, I ordered some beers from them and the brewer recognised me from the podcast. Oh, <laughs> yes. Are you the Katie Wilde? Yes, I am. <laughs> it literally made my day. Added in an extra bottle of their Death or Glory, which was a really nice, dark, strong ale. So it was really oh, yeah. perfect. And then this week, because my Tring Brewery order is obviously gone now. That was, you know, nearly a week ago 
go, guys. <laughs> I also got a box from Firebrand Beer, which is based in Cornwall, and that was from recommendations on Twitter, and they're absolutely amazing. They've got lots of really nice hoppy IPAs and some lovely stouts to try, so I'll be working through that this week as well. So whatever you've been drinking, listeners, do make sure that you continue to enjoy them. Send us a few pictures as well. We've not done a hashtag this week, have we? So why don't we say, you know, hashtag lockdown drinking and share with us some pickies of you supping your favourite stuff. Now, don't forget to join us next week when we learn all about beer diversity. We're sitting down with Ignition Brewery and award-winning beer communicator Emma Inch. Indeed. And I'll tell you what, to finish our heritage issue, I'll finish with a heritage quote. I've got one from Queen Victoria. I tell you, from the golden age of British pubs, I reckon. Oh, and, your majesty. And she, <laughs> my majesty. She says, give my people plenty of beer, good beer and cheap beer, and you will have no revolution among them. Tell you what, Vicky, sensible words, chick. It's one for the government to bear in mind when deciding <laughs> when to reopen our pubs, eh? Fourth of July, Ch- right? <laughs> Woo! Fourth of July, that, that'll do me. Hey, Fourth of July as well, I'm, Katie. Wonderful. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Scrap your independence, let's get... Pe- oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers to that, eh? Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. How does a free case of beer sound? Yes, you can grab a case for free courtesy of our pals at Beer52 by going to www.beer52.com forward slash people. That's the numbers 52 in the 52 and covering the meagre postage cost of £5.95. And what's more, as a special offer for our listeners, they'll throw in two extra beers for free. So that's 10 unique craft beers. Beer52 is actually the biggest beer club in the world. Each month, they send their members a case of beer from a different part of the world, and this month it's an absolute belter. Their great European road trip case takes in the best beers from across the continent. So try a crisp, refreshing Pilsner from Norway's Lervig Brewery and a monster 7.5 double IPA from Sweden's Durges Brewery. On the dark side this month, there's a smooth stout from Copenhagen's Tool. There's also beer from Croatia, Poland, Germany, Serbia and Austria, among others. And if dark beer's not your thing, you can choose the light-only case. Also included is the ever-insightful Ferment magazine and a couple of tasty snacks. And even if, after all that, you're still unsatisfied, you can simply pause or cancel at any time. So head over to www.beer52, that's the numbers 5 and 2, dot com forward slash people to claim your free case of 10 beers now.